Hey, future doctors. Thanks for joining me on Spoonful of Sugar, a podcast made for medical students by medical students to help the medicine go down. My name is Rhea Mulherker. I'm currently a radiation oncology resident in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and I will be your host today. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you had an amazing Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, I'm excited to be back today with another Clinical Concepts episode. And today's topic is actually going to be something that I think is fundamental for every single doctor, no matter what specialty you choose. And that topic is cardiac arrest. So if you're listening to this episode as a medical student, you might already be trained in basic life support or BLS, uh, which is you know, basically how to do CPR in the event that a patient's heart stops beating, they stop breathing, and they, you know, quite literally die. Um, In this episode, we'll be covering what to do in a situation of cardiac arrest, more from an ACLS standpoint or advanced cardiac life support. And this is training that you'll go to most likely prior to residency. If you, you know, even if you're training as a nurse and you're going to be taking care of critically ill patients, advanced cardiac life support is something that's really important to know. Um, so that we understand how to take care of patients um, when we're resuscitating them from death. So, you know, before I begin, what I'd like to do is just kind of go over arrhythmias in general very, very briefly, and then for the remainder of the episode, we'll focus solely on cardiac arrest and how to handle this situation. The only reason I want to start by talking about all arrhythmias as an umbrella is because there's many different kinds of arrhythmias and life-threatening arrhythmias typically fall into one of two categories. They're either classified as tachyarrhythmias or bradyarrhythmias. And, you know, at some point in your medical medical education, you will be exposed to the different algorithms to handle tachyarrhythmias as well as bradyarrhythmias in an emergency situation. Um, This is something that you should be familiar with at the level of step two. As a person working in the hospital, you know, as an intern or resident or whatever it is you're going to do, the most important thing to do um, whenever you're dealing with a patient who's having some kind of arrhythmia is to know how to emergently assess them. So the most common situation is you're going to be a medicine intern, it's going to be night, some nurse is going to page you and say, hey, this patient looks like they're having SVT or supraventricular tachycardia at a rate of 180 beats per minute on telly. What do I do? So the most important question to you at that moment is, is the patient stable or unstable? And how do you answer that? You find out their vitals, especially the blood pressure. So when you get that call saying, you know, the patient is an SVT, heart rate of 180, you need to ask them to get a full set of vitals right away and ask them what is the patient's blood pressure. If the patient's blood pressure is dangerously low, then they are unstable. If the patient's blood pressure is, you know, something like 120 over 80 or higher, uh, you can be assured that they're probably stable if that is somewhere around their baseline. You also need to go up to their bedside and evaluate them and take a look at their mental status. Are they, you know, with it? Are they talking to you? Are they breathing okay? Things like that. And you also want to get an EKG to confirm that whatever you're seeing on telemetry or the monitor that's at patient's bedside is what's truly going on. So, you know, you get that page saying, oh, patient is in some kind of arrhythmia. First question should be, what is the blood pressure? What is the full set of vitals? Get an EKG if possible and then say, I'm coming, and you need to go there and evaluate the patient yourself. 
So, you know, that's kind of a three-step approach to what to do if you're emergently paged about a patient having an arrhythmia. Um, and then, you know, tachyarrhythmias, bradyarrhythmias, there's different emergent algorithms that you can use to kind of tackle these situations. For example, for supraventricular tachycardia, we learned that you first try vagal maneuvers. If that's not working, you can try um, adenosine and so on. That is not the topic of this episode, but just something to know in general for any kind of arrhythmia, you need to assess if the patient is stable or unstable. You need to get an EKG to confirm the arrhythmia and you definitely need to go to the patient's bedside and evaluate them and take care of next steps. And if you are, you know, if you're listening to this as a future intern or you're already an intern, it's really important to get your senior, get some kind of supervision so you are able to handle this situation. So moving on then to cardiac arrest, Cardiac arrest is a completely different situation. We're kind of past the point of having time to get paged and things like that. This is an emergency situation. The patient is literally dead in front of you and anything you do to resuscitate them has to be immediate. So I'll start by asking, what is cardiac arrest? How do you know that cardiac arrest has happened? So generally the patient is pulseless, they are not breathing, and they are not responsive. Um, and you know, this can happen in kind of two different scenarios. So it can happen in public. Um, if you, you know, if you're in public and you notice that a patient just kind of falls over, they're, they're not responsive. It usually happens very suddenly. Um, what you have to do is you have to point to someone and you directly point to a person and say, you call 911. You ask if there's a defibrillator, tell somebody to go get the defibrillator. Um, and you point to somebody and you say, you help me with compressions. You know, it's always taught that in a CPR situation in public, if you are going to be the person leading the situation, then you need to directly point at people and tell them what to do. Um, otherwise, there's kind of this dispersion of responsibility and nobody really understands who should be doing what task. People can always assume that, oh, maybe somebody else called 911 and so on. So it's really important in an emergency situation like this that you physically point at a specific person and say, you call 911, you go get a defibrillator, you help me with compressions. And if you happen to be the person that knows where the defibrillator is, then announce, I know where the defibrillator is, I'm going to go get it. It's really, really important to be clear about what your roles are. And then you would do, you know, start doing the BLS or basic life support algorithm with the chest compressions. If you have a defibrillator, use the defibrillator and hopefully 911 gets there in time to get that person to a hospital. Now, if the cardiac arrest happens while the patient is already in the hospital, the situation is a little bit different and it tends to be a little bit more organized. So whoever finds the patient unresponsive, not breathing is going to call, you know, there's usually a code blue button in the room. They can press that button. They can call a code blue. There's a different protocol in each hospital. Um, but typically these patients, you know, in the ICU, especially they're already connected to a monitor and you can kind of see they're already destabilizing and then they, you know, they'll code. And so you can call the code blue, you can call from help, you can you know, someone will get the crash cart. There's a whole protocol that happens once a code blue is called or whatever it is called at the hospital that you're working. And then the management of this situation involves a lot of different people and it can be very, very scary. It gets very crowded, very fast. Everyone's kind of hovering around the patient's bed. It's really important for everybody who's in that room 
to have a role and to know what that role is. And, you know, typically there are people on duty and they are assigned to show up to these code situations and they have a specific role, whether it is recording what happened, participating in compressions, and so on. Generally, as a medical student, your role will be to stand in line for CPR, so chest compressions. And remember, chest compressions are given, you try to aim for 100 to 120 beats per minute. It's important to keep your arms straight. Um, You push at the center of their chest, kind of right between the nipple line. Um, And it's important to stand straight, have good enough height so that you can push from your hips rather than your upper arms because you will tire out. And chest compressions are given for two minutes at a time. And then in between, we do a pulse check. We give medications. We can give shock and so on. So in this episode, you know, we're going to talk about the ACLS algorithm and how to manage cardiac arrest kind of from the perspective of the person who's running the code, you know, something that you should understand um, because, you know, someday you might be the person that's running a code. Uh, You might be the only doctor in the room. Um, You might be an ICU attending, who knows? So it's really important to kind of have a basic understanding of what goes on in cardiac arrest um, and things to understand if you are the person running the code. So, you know, there are two main branches of cardiac arrest. Do you guys kind of know what the different branches are and what separates them? So the distinction between the two different branches of cardiac arrest really has to do with what rhythm we see on the monitor. So the first branch is either pulseless ventricular tachycardia, so pulseless VTAC, or ventricular fibrillation, VFib. You know, in both pulseless VTAC as well as VFib, you do see a rhythm on the monitor and it's a rhythm that you should familiarize yourself with and what that looks like. Um, But obviously their heart is not functional. They're not able to pump their heart properly and get oxygen to their organs. The other two types of rhythms that fall into the other branch of cardiac arrest are asystole, which will just be a flat line. Um, And the other option is pulseless electrical activity or PEA, which is nearly a flat line. And do you have any idea why these branches are so important to separate? Like, why do we need to differentiate pulseless VTAC or VFib from asystole or PEA? The reason is because one of these branches is shockable and the other is not shockable. When I say shockable, I mean it's something that you can shock um, or defibrillate. You can use a defibrillator to try and bring them back. Do you guys know which of these branches is shockable? If you're thinking VTAC and VFib, you're absolutely right. So pulseless VTAC and ventricular fibrillation are both shockable arrhythmias. Why would that be? So think of what is happening during the arrhythmia and what shocking the heart actually does. So if there's an arrhythmia, the cardiac muscles are not contracting the way that they're supposed to, right? If there's a rhythm on telly, then they're at least contracting erroneously. So the idea is that delivering a high energy shock to a heart that's just kind of flailing because there is some kind of rhythm that's aberrantly going through the heart, delivering a high energy shock to that will cause the muscles to contract in synchrony all at the same time. And then hopefully reset the rhythm so that they can start pumping normally again. So if there is, you know, if they're in pulseless VTAC or VFib and there is something happening on telly, that tells you there is some kind of electrical current going through the heart. So you can shock the heart with a really high 
um, amount of energy and cause all the muscles to contract together simultaneously and kind of force the heart to reset. That's the idea behind defibrillation. And I actually want to take a step back for a minute and talk about what defibrillation truly means and what a shock means. When we say give somebody a shock, it can apply to a cardiac arrest situation. It can apply to just a person that's in regular atrial fibrillation. So there's a lot of different things that we mean when we say shock. So do you guys know what the two different ways to shock a heart are? So there's something called synchronized cardioversion, and there's something called unsynchronized cardioversion. What is synchronized cardioversion? So synchronized cardioversion is delivery of a low energy shock. Um, and, you know, when the shock is given, there's an electrical sensor so that it can actually synchronize the delivery of the shock with the peak of the QRS wave. So the R wave, really. And the shock is delivered just after the R wave. Um, this is done for, you know, something like atrial fibrillation or supraventricular tachycardias. And then there's unsynchronized cardioversion, which is kind of synonymous with the term defibrillation that I used earlier. So defibrillation or unsynchronized cardioversion is a higher energy shock that's delivered kind of immediately as soon as the button is pressed. So it can happen at any time in the cardiac cycle. Why would we not want to do this in a situation like AFib or SVT? Why is it important to give a synchronized shock there? and not an unsynchronized shock. So, the, you know, the idea is that if a patient has a pulse, then shocking them at literally any point in their cardiac cycle, you stand a risk of throwing that patient into a life-threatening tachyarrhythmia, like VTAC or VFib. So, you know, in this case, the patient's life is already threatened. Their heart is not beating in any kind of harmonious way. There's no atrial contraction followed by a ventricular contraction. So, the ventriculars are literally flailing, so it doesn't matter when we give the shock. So in a case of cardiac arrest, you want to defibrillate or do unsynchronized cardioversion. So I know that was a lot of information, but I just kind of want to pause here and give you two major takeaways from everything we've just been over. So the number one takeaway is that there are two types of cardiac arrhythmias, shockable and unshockable. What are the shockable arrhythmias? That would be ventricular fibrillation or pulseless ventricular tachycardia. And what are the unshockable arrhythmias? That would be asystole or PEA arrest. PEA is pulseless electrical activity. And then the number two takeaway is that in cardiac arrest, when we say we're giving a shock, it's defibrillation. And that means that the shock is unsynchronized. It is a high energy shock that is given anywhere in the cardiac cycle because the ventricles are already flailing and there's no risk of throwing the patient into a life-threatening arrhythmia because they're already there. So that's sort of the theory behind, you know, what, why we do what we do. Um, now, what the heck do we actually do if a patient is dead or dying in front of us in a code blue or, you know, whatever it's called at your institution when that situation is called? And remember, it gets chaotic. It's chaotic pretty fast. So generally, the nurses and the other staff know that they should place a board under the patient, apply pads on both sides. The crash cart will have the defibrillator. It'll also have all the medications that are necessary. 
from the perspective of the person who is running a code, if you are that person, you know, if you are the only physician in the room who knows how to run a code, you need to place yourself at the foot of the patient's bed, announce your name and say, I am running the code so that there is no confusion. And then you don't actually physically do anything. It will be very, very tempting to stand in line for compressions or help apply the pads or whatever it is, but you have to stand at the foot of the bed, keep assessing the situation, and you need to tell people what to do. So, you know, it's imperative in this situation to start CPR. So remember, when you do chest compressions, um, you want to do two-minute intervals, push hard and fast, so two centimeters deep, 100 to 120 beats per minute. Remember, push from your hips, not from your arms. People need to switch out or they will fatigue. There's ways to measure the quality of your CPR. So you can use waveform capnography. Um, you want to make sure that the end-tidal carbon dioxide is le- um, over 10 millimeters of mercury. If it's less than that, then you need to improve the CPR. You can also monitor intraarterial pressure. If the end diastolic pressure is less than 20 millimeters mercury, you need to improve the CPR. So, you know, it's cardiopulmonary resuscitation. So always keep in mind what intervention we're doing and why we're doing it. So what is the point of chest compressions? It's to keep blood flowing through the body and get blood to all the organs to prevent end organ damage, especially brain damage. Now, if we're just pumping, if the patient is not breathing and their heart is not beating, they're not pumping blood, but they're also not getting oxygen, right? So what is the point of chest compressions if the blood is not oxygenated? And the answer is there is no point. So you need to start oxygen. When you're in the hospital, anesthesia is generally already there. They generally place a bag mask and they can ventilate um, with the goal of intubating for an advanced airway. Um, and, you know, this is kind of an aside. Movies portray it wrong all the time. TV shows portray it incorrectly. Patients who get cardiopulmonary resuscitation are 100% going to get intubated because they will never just wake up and start breathing on their own. Um, you know, dead people are not breathing. And if you're not getting oxygen, then as I just said earlier, there's no point of circulating blood through the body by just pumping on the chest if the patient is not breathing and we're not pumping oxygenated blood. So we absolutely need, need, need to get an airway. And it's typically an advanced airway. So intubation, connecting to a mechanical ventilator in order to resuscitate these patients. And that's something to keep in mind when you're discussing code status with families, because a lot of times they'll say that compressions are okay, but they don't want to go on a mechanical ventilator. And you need to explain to them why this is not possible. The reason is there's no point of doing compressions if we're not getting oxygenated blood to the body. So, you know, once the patient is intubated, you can use the waveform capnography, as I mentioned earlier, and this can also help confirm placement of the endotracheal tube. Um, it's important that we don't overventilate patients. We generally want to give about 10 breaths per minute if they're intubated or we're using the ambu bag. If there's no advanced airway um, after Every two minutes of CPR, you give two breaths. You can even give two breaths mouth to mouth, or you can just use the bag and give about 10 breaths per minute. Um, And then, you know, once they're connected to the ventilator, obviously anesthesia is there and we'll take care of the oxygenation. So 
you know, compressions, oxygen, those are kind of the basic things that you need to do. And this will buy you time. You know, the goal is to get oxygenated blood pumping through the patient's body so that they don't have end organ damage and things like their brain cells don't die. But again, this is just a temporizing measure. You are giving them life-saving, you know, this is a life-saving intervention that we're just doing to keep oxygenated blood running through the body, prevent end organ damage. But in any medical emergency, we really have two goals, right? So our first goal is to stabilize the patient. And in this case, the goal of cardiopulmonary resuscitation is to get return of spontaneous circulation. The goal of doing all the CPR and all the interventions that we're going to talk about with ACLS is to get ROSC or return of spontaneous circulation, R-O-S-C. That will stabilize the patient and, you know, it'll get their heart beating again. It'll get them, you know, they're hopefully already on a ventilator, but it'll get their heart beating again. The second goal that you need to have in mind, in the back of your mind, is to figure out why this happened in the first place. Why did they code? And you have to think about whether or not there are reversible causes for this situation. Because if there are reversible causes, then you can reverse them and prevent this situation from happening again. Okay? So as we go through the remainder of this episode and talk about ACLS and what we're going to do, keep in mind why we're doing what we're doing. So, you know, the chest compressions and getting them oxygenated, think of those as temporizing measures, you know. We're really just sustaining their body and doing the work that their body would normally do for them to prevent any kind of end organ damage from hopefully happening. It's not always possible, unfortunately, but we try our best. And then everything else we're going to talk about in ACLS algorithm is the goal is to get ROSC, so get return of spontaneous circulation, and then figure out why the patient coded in the first place so that if it's reversible, you can reverse it. So let's kind of move along our algorithm. So CPR started, we're working on oxygenation. Let's say the patient's already, you know, connected to a mechanical ventilator to simplify things. If the rhythm is shockable, you can give them a shock generally after that first two minutes of CPR. So let's say the patient is in pulseless VTAC or VFib. You know, you did two minutes of CPR, you got them intubated, let's try to give them a shock. If they do not have return of spontaneous circulation after that shock, because remember we always do a pulse check as well after two minutes, then you continue chest compressions um, for another two minutes. And at this time, it's really important to get access. So what do I mean when I say access? You want to get some kind of line into the patient, an intravenous line, an intraosseous line if needed. It's very, very important for us to have some kind of access to push medications, okay? So what have we done so far? We've done chest compressions focusing on oxygenation. Um, it's, if it's a shockable rhythm, we gave the patient a shock after two minutes of chest compressions. They did not have ROSC, so we're going to continue the chest compressions for another two minutes and try to get them access. So remember, compressions, oxygen, shock, and then compressions again if they don't respond, but you also really need to get that access. And then after the two minutes of chest compressions, you can give a shock again. 
And then if after that second shock, there's still no return of spontaneous circulation, this is when you start adding medications. So, you know, generally in CPR, what we do is two minutes of chest compressions, shock, two minutes of chest compressions, shock. And that whole cycle continues. But after the second shock, we start adding medications, you know, with each shock after each set of compressions if the patient still doesn't have a pulse. So now let's kind of talk about what medications we use in chest compressions and why. So do you guys know what the first medication that's considered in a cardiac arrest situation would be? What medication would you call for? So the answer is epinephrine. And do you guys know how much epinephrine we would give? One milligram IV. And, you know, if you only have the IO access, then you give it intraosseously. But you give one milligram epinephrine, hopefully IV. And then, you know, let's say they got the shock, they got the epinephrine, you did the second, you did the next set of chest compressions. Um, Again, you gave a shock, they're still not responding. What's the second medication that we would give? So then you can give amiodarone. And do you guys know what dose we give of amiodarone? So 300 milligrams IV for the first dose of amiodarone. And then, you know, let's say they still don't respond. So you have to do it again. You do the two minutes of chest compressions. You give a shock. It's time for a third medication. What is the third, the third time that you have to administer a drug? What do you give? So then it actually alternates. We just go back to epinephrine, one milligram IV, same dose. And then, you know, if they're still not back, again, repeat the cycle of chest compressions, repeat the shock. And then the fourth time we're administering a medication, what medication do we give? So now it's amiodarone again, but it's different dose. Any idea what dose? So now it's 150 milligrams IV. Okay. And then again, we keep repeating that two minutes of chest compressions, shock, pulse check. And with that shock and pulse check in between, we will keep giving medications as needed. So it's epinephrine, one milligram IV, followed by amiodarone, 300 milligrams IV. Again, back to epinephrine, one milligram IV. Then a lower dose of amiodarone at 150 milligrams IV. And then if they're still not responding, you go back to epinephrine and you can keep giving epinephrine every three to five minutes um, in between shocks. Now, let's kind of talk about more specifics related to the shocks as well as the medication. Starting with the shock, do you guys know how much energy we give with each shock? So now the energy is typically going to depend on the defibrillator and there's generally a manufacturer's recommendation. ACLS guidelines say that for biphasic defibrillators, the initial energy is typically 120 to 200 joules as per the specification. And then the second and third doses can be equivalent. And then the higher, and then after that, you should consider using higher doses. If it's not specified with the defibrillator, you should use the maximum energy available. That is per ACLS guidelines. And then for a monophasic defibrillator, um, they typically recommend energy around 360 joules. So monophasic defibrillators have some disadvantages because it's higher energy, so there's higher risk of burns. Um, Typically, biphasic uh, defibrillators are preferred. Now, 
if the rhythm is not shockable, um, you know, we continue the whole cycle, as we mentioned earlier, CPR for two minutes, then you check for pulse between intervals. The only difference is it's either asystole or PEA arrest. And so we cannot give a shock because it's a, it's not a shockable rhythm. So generally we, in these cases, we only give epinephrine. We don't give amiodarone. Can you guys, you know, think why that would be? So amiodarone, think of its mechanism of action, right? It's a class three antiarrhythmic. So it blocks potassium channels that cause repolarization of the heart muscle. Amiodarone is typically a chemical cardioverter. So it performs chemical cardioversion. We use this for, you know, in the setting of AFib too. So it's like a chemical way of shocking the heart. And so it's only used for shockable arrhythmias. What does epinephrine do? Why would epinephrine be useful in both situations? What is its role in cardiac arrest? So epinephrine is actually used for its vasoconstrictive effects. Do you guys remember the mechanism of action of epinephrine? So this is an alpha-1 adrenergic agonist. So it causes direct vasoconstriction of blood vessels and it improves perfusion pressures to both the brain and the heart. So, you know, remember that epinephrine is used for its vasoconstrictive effects and amiodarone is used because it's a chemical cardioverter. So in the setting of a shockable rhythm, we not only defibrillate, but we also give both epinephrine and amiodarone. If the rhythm is not shockable, we continue the whole cycle with the CPR, you know, chest compressions for two minutes, and then you check for a pulse in between intervals, except we only give epinephrine um, for its vasoconstrictive effects. I know that was a lot of information and it's difficult to kind of get accustomed to the flow of what happens in ACLS. Um, I would really highly recommend that you look up the ACLS algorithm because there's a lot of really great graphics and diagrams that are online that can help kind of walk you through this process. And then in practice, there are actually some very good apps that help you keep track not only of time, but also of what where you are in the ACLS algorithm, what drugs you've already given. Um, and I've seen people actually use these apps in actual code situations so that everyone can kind of keep track of where we are in the process of the code. Really briefly though, in summary, you know, the whole point of this ACLS algorithm is to try and get return of spontaneous circulation. So remember that in both cases, we're going to keep the chest compressions and the ventilation going because that is sustaining the patient and trying to prevent end organ damage. And then in between the compressions, we're going to try and give a shock. And then we're going to start adding in medications once we have that IV or IO access. So we start, if it's, you know, if it's shockable, we do epinephrine and then amio and then epinephrine and then amio and then epinephrine every three to five minutes. Or we, you know, if it's not shockable, then we just try to get them, you know, we continue the chest compressions and we give epinephrine. Now, what is the dose of epinephrine that we give again? It's one milligram IV. And what is the dose of amiodarone that we give? So the first time it's 300 milligram IV, then it's 150 milligram IV. And when do we use amio? Remember, only for the shockable arrhythmias. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there's kind of two goals of ACLS, right? The first is to get return of spontaneous circulation, which we just talked about. And the second is to look for reversible causes. The reason is 
that these are things that you can fix. Now, there's a really good mnemonic for reversible causes of cardiac arrest. Any idea what the mnemonic is? So it's five H's and five T's. The five H's are hypovolemia, hypoxia, hydrogen ion, which kind of stands for acidosis, hypo or hyperkalemia, and hypothermia. I'll say them again. Hypovolemia, hypoxia, hydrogen ion is kind of a stand-in for acidosis, hypo or hyperkalemia, and hypothermia. And then there are as well five T's. So these T's are tension pneumothorax, tamponade, referring to cardiac tamponade, toxins, thrombosis, um, and thrombosis is twice. So either pulmonary thrombosis or coronary thrombosis. So I'll say the five T's again as well. Tension pneumo, cardiac tamponade, toxins, pulmonary thrombosis, and coronary thrombosis. I know there's a lot, you know, a lot to remember there, but again, think of why we have this mnemonic. The reason is all of these conditions are things that can be fixed. They are reversible causes of cardiac arrest. So hypovolemia, what's the solution for that? Fluids, pressors, hypoxia, what's the solution for that? Ventilation, acidosis, you can give bicarb, hypo and hyperkalemia. You can, you know, fix those by either giving potassium or giving a hyperkalemia protocol. Tension pneumothorax, that can be fixed with a needle thoracotomy or a chest tube. How about tamponade? Pericardiosynthesis. How about if there's thrombosis? You can give TPA to kind of lyse that clot. If there's toxins... Well, if you know the drug, you can give the antidote. Like for beta blockers, you can give glucagon or some toxins can be dialyzed out of the body. So again, these are all reversible causes. And that's why it's important to think what could have happened to this patient because is there anything that I could fix to prevent them from continuing to code or from coding again? So, you know, say you are successful. Say you did the whole ACLS algorithm and you achieved ROSC. Um, if you want to make it an exciting story, say that, you know, you even had the you know, the presence of mind and you decided to do a point of care ultrasound on the patient's legs, thinking of reversible causes for what could have happened, what could have caused this code. And you did that ultrasound and you noticed that there was clot all in their legs. And the number one reason for cardiac arrest on your differential was pulmonary embolism. So you even made the decision to administer TPA um, and, you know, you were actually successful in resuscitating the patient. It turned out that it was a pulmonary embolism that caused them to arrest. Um, you know, and then you achieved ROSC. What next? What do we do next? So, you know, just remember that these patients, if they are resuscitated and they have heartbeat again, they're typically going to be on a ventilator and they're typically, they typically need to be in ICU at that point. Um, and we care for them there. Something that you'll hear about potentially in the setting following a cardiac arrest is something called a hypothermia protocol. Any idea what that is and why we do it? 
So after ROSC is achieved, um, hospital protocols will generally specify use of cooling devices to try and bring your body temperature, well, the patient's body temperature down to somewhere between 32 to 34 degrees Celsius. Remember, body temperature is 37 degrees Celsius. So they generally recommend for rapid cooling within one to three hours, maintaining that hypothermia, 32 to 34 degrees Celsius for about 24 hours, and then passively rewarming the patients. This is something that's done because it has been shown in studies to help kind of prevent global ischemia, and it's actually also been shown to improve neurological outcomes. The idea is that hypothermia and maintaining patients at that lower body temperature helps to reduce metabolic demand from all areas of the body, including the myocardium, um, and you know, reducing that metabolic demand helps to decrease ischemia. And like I said earlier, it's been shown to improve neurological outcomes, and so that's why we do it. And again, remember, these are patients who are now on a mechanical ventilator, they're in the ICU, they're intubated, they're sedated. And, you know, this gets more complex, um, and this is stuff that you'll learn if you ever work in a medical ICU, um, but when they're on the ventilator, there's a lot of, there's a huge range of different ventilator settings that you can use. There's a lot of different settings and modes of a ventilator. The goal when any patient is on a ventilator should be to bring the vent as you're able, as close to physiologic settings as possible. Um, so we can change the percentage of oxygen. We can change the respiratory rate. You want to make this as close to physiologic as possible and then slowly start to try and wean patients' sedation. Why would it be important to do these things? You know, to wean them, wean their sedation, and to make the vent as close to physiologic as possible. So, you know, if the, the vent is because whenever we ultimately extubate them, and that is our goal always, to extubate these patients, um, where they're going to be breathing with some kind of other assistive device, but we want to make sure that they're able to breathe on their own and initiate their own breaths. And they're going to tolerate lower vent, you know, they're going to be able to tolerate less support with ventilation. And at the same time, you know, kind of in conjunction with that, we want to wean their sedation because we want to be able to evaluate their mental status. Number one, we want to see if they're able to breathe on their own and kind of initiate their own breaths. And number two, we want to see if they can follow commands. You know, what is their mental status? And it's really, really important to assess their mental status. Why would we be worried if a patient, you know, let's say that a patient is really sedated, you're coming down on their sedation. One of the first things you can test for is noxious stimuli. Kind of. So, you know, things that cause them pain, like pinching their fingernail or you know, causing them any kind of pain. Do they respond to noxious stimuli? And then as the sedation gets down even lower and lower, um, we want to see if they can follow commands. Are they able to open their eyes if you ask them to? Are they squeezing th your finger? Why are these things important? Why is it important to assess their mental status as we come down on sedation? So, you know, remember what they just went through, right? These patients literally died. Their heart stopped beating. They stopped breathing. There was a period of time where this person was literally dead and we artificially ventilated them and we artificially circulated the blood in their body to try and get oxygenated blood flowing to their organs so that we would prevent end organ damage. There is a risk always, however, that we were not able to get oxygenated blood to their brain for a long enough time, and their neurologic status could thus be compromised. 
So after cardiac arrest, we are very, very worried about the patient's neurologic status. You know, like I just said, remember that the goal of CPR is to keep oxygenated blood flowing through the whole body while the patient is dead so that they don't suffer damage to critical organs. And you're going to be looking at all the organs, you know, after CPR, you're going to get all their labs, you're going to look at their kidney function, their liver function, and so on. But the brain is really, really important because a lot of times the brain doesn't recover from this kind of neurologic damage. So it's important to do good quality chest compressions, and that's why I talked about those metrics for kind of evaluating chest compressions. Because if the CPR is good quality and it's for a short enough time, then hopefully patients are able to maintain their mental status. That's one of the most important things we think about in the setting after um, a cardiac arrest. So, you know, in the ICU, a lot of times you'll see patients on a ventilator who had chest compressions for prolonged periods, um, like 20, 30 minutes or upwards. A lot of times these patients are found down out in the field and chest compressions are initiated after a long time. After a while, if the patients don't have a mental status, it can be really difficult to have this conversation with the family Um, because a lot of times, you know, they're not brain dead per se, but sometimes there's just no meaningful neurologic activity and sometimes there's no hope for meaningful neurologic recovery. Um, And it's really sad because, you know, in these situations, the part of the patient's brain that made them who they were can be compromised and that can be gone. And it's impossible to say how long it's, you know, if, if they'll ever recover. So, you know, don't forget that the patients who are getting chest compressions, for all intents and purposes, are already dead and everything that we do is an intervention to try and resuscitate them. So, you know, it's easy to kind of go through the motions of chest compressions or to memorize the ACLS algorithm. It's really, really, really challenging to recall this and to be able to execute this calmly when there is an actually dead patient in front of you and you're trying to save their life. In the background of all this, you have to remember the bigger picture, okay? There has to be somebody who is communicating with the family trying to understand the family's goals. You need to kind of keep in mind what stage of life the patient is in, all of their comorbidities. You need to talk to the family. Would the patient have wanted you to continue chest compressions and CPR? Would they want to restart CPR if you were to achieve ROSC, but they were to code again? Um, You know, these are all things. It's a really complex situation, um, not just medically, but also kind of socially and ethically and morally. So it's really important to kind of get a sense of all that and understand that we're not just talking about an ACLS algorithm. We're not just talking about CPR. We're talking about something much bigger and much more important than that. So I'm kind of sorry for, you know, getting on that spiel there at the end. But, you know, hopefully this episode was a little bit helpful. And the major takeaways that I wanted you to get are, number one, the definition of cardiac arrest. Um, you know, the arrhythmias that can lead to cardiac arrest, which ones are shockable, which ones are unshockable. I hope you get a basic understanding of the ACLS algorithm and, you know, how to integrate defibrillation if integrated and the important drugs. Remember, epinephrine and amiodarone if it's a shockable rhythm. Um, I hope you get the 5Hs and 5Ts mnemonic for the reversible causes of cardiac arrest. Understand the importance of the hypothermia protocol. And major takeaway, 
understand the importance of, you know, high quality CPR as well as oxygenation um, for their mental status and the ramifications after they've, you know, gone through everything and if you do achieve ROSC. I have been the intern on night shift who showed up to a code blue and had to call the family of a patient that I did not even know and explain to them what was happening. It's important to explain to the family that when a patient has cardiac arrest and they're being resuscitated, they're already dead and everything that we do is to try and bring them back. You need to make sure that families understand that chest compression without intubation is not a viable option because we really need to oxygenate in order for compressions to be effective. You know, if we're not getting oxygenated blood to all the organs in the body, there's no point in breaking the ribs and pushing on the patient and causing all these bruises and pain, you know, just to just to pump non-oxygenated blood. You have to make sure that blood is oxygenated. And for that, you have to have a ventilator. A lot of families don't understand that, and it's really, really important to explain it to them. Um, you know, as challenging as it is, you have to try and explain the seriousness of what you are doing and try to assess the goals. Would the patient have wanted CPR to continue? It's for a lot of patients um, who have terminally ill conditions or who just have many comorbidities in general, especially if they're very frail and very elderly, there's a good chance that once they're intubated and connected to a mechanical ventilator, you'll never be able to extubate them. So it's really important to assess, and it's, it's so challenging in a shocking situation like this, but it's very, very important to talk to families and be very clear about what is happening and clearly assess their goals at all points that you're caring for the patient. And then, you know, I have to add about COVID patients because this is a reality and we're seeing a lot of COVID patients to this day in the hospitals. Unfortunately, you know, a lot of times COVID patients towards the end of their illness are on maximum ventilator settings. They're getting so much positive pressure through the ventilator. They're at such high respiratory rates with their settings that the ventilator itself is causing damage to their lungs that they'll likely never recover from. And despite that, these patients are still not oxygenating well. So, you know, a lot of times COVID patients who have, you know, they're, they're intubated and ventilated because of the COVID disease in their lungs, eventually these patients can get hypoxic, bradycardic, their heart will start to slow, and eventually they can code. And, you know, if these patients code with COVID, chest compressions are not effective because there is just no means of oxygenating their blood. And that's the whole reason their heart stopped beating in the first place. So, you know, even if you do the whole thing, compressions, shock, epinephrine, it's impossible to meet the ultimate goal of getting oxygenated blood to their organs. And so, you know, I have had a lot of conversations with family members of COVID patients. And a lot of times family members did want to change the code status of these patients and make them do not resuscitate so that they were not subjected to chest compressions in the event that their heart were to stop beating. Um, but there were also a lot of family members who, you know, wanted to keep them full code with, you know, do everything that you possibly can do the chest compressions. Um, and, you know, it's understandable. Families want their doctors to do everything that they can to save their loved one's life. Uh, however, 
you know, in, in the setting of COVID, the medicine that we currently have and, you know, currently can utilize, unfortunately, sometimes is just not enough to, to bring these patients back. Because, you know, the whole point, as I mentioned, of CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation, is to get oxygenated blood to the patient's organs and then achieve return of spontaneous circulation. If the reason that they coded is hypoxia, which is one of the reversible causes, remember, 5Hs and 5Ts. So if the reason that they that their heart stopped beating is because of hypoxia, then, you know, unfortunately, in the case of COVID patients, they're hypoxic to a point that is not possible to reverse. We physically do not have the ventilator settings to be able to reverse their hypoxia. So, you know, this is a very complicated topic. It's a discussion that, you know, whatever I say, every single patient is going to be unique. Every single situation, every single family conversation is going to be very, very unique. But the reason I kind of went on this, you know, tangent here is because I want to emphasize that in everything that you do in medicine, it's really important to keep in mind why we're doing what we're doing and, you know, how, just, just keep in mind the why, the purpose of what we're doing. So through this episode, I really, really hope that I've imparted kind of the basics of ACLS so that you have an understanding And I also hope that you understand that this is a really complicated topic. It carries a lot of gravity. Um, As I just said, every patient situation is different. So it's really important to not just memorize the algorithm, but to actually understand why we do what we do. And, you know, that way, when, when you have a patient in front of you and you know their history, you can think through their case and try to figure out the best way to help the patient. For example, the example I used earlier, you know, make the decision to give TPA if you highly suspect that this is a pulmonary embolism or do a pericardiosynthesis if a patient has a pacemaker inserted two days earlier and then they code because of a bleed and a cardiac tamponade. It's really important to know the patient's history and to have a differential in your mind and to think of what intervention you can do in the moment. It's really challenging and that's why we call it the practice of medicine. So, you know, you have to understand why things are happening so that you can think through the medicine. And finally, you know, never forget that you are dealing with a person that is on the brink of death. So you need to keep the families updated. You need to honestly convey what is going on and what interventions are and are not capable of doing. And you need to always, always, always assess their goals and remember that goals can change with, you know, changing circumstances. Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. I know this was kind of a longer one, um, but I really hope it was helpful and I hope you took away something about cardiac arrest and dealing with this in the hospital. Um, If you have any questions, comments, concerns, please take them to spoonfulofsugar.org and you can post them under the link for this episode. Um, And as always, just remember that SOS does not always have to stand for a cry for help. It can also stand for a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down.